pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds. Lord, by your Spirit, teach us and be with us. As the rabbi of our soul, instruct us. As the Savior, cleanse us. And as our Lord, guide and protect. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. A distinguished explorer was making his trek through the Amazon jungle. He had hired native tribesmen to help carry the great burdens, the luggage that he had to tote along. And he was driving them rather hard day after day, wanting to gain ground and gain it rapidly to achieve his goal at arriving at a certain location. At the end of the third day, they finally rested for the night, but when first morning light broke, he woke everyone up and said, let's get going, and he urged his party on. However, the natives sat on the ground next to their burdens and did not budge. The explorer was frustrated. He again did everything he could to get them up and going, but with no success, finally he went to the chief and said, what is the problem? And the chief said this, my friend, they are resting until their souls catch up with their bodies. And when I hear that story, I think of the hectic pace, the frenzied pace that you and I live from day to day in which we are carrying heavy burdens, trying to meet deadlines, trying to gain more, more influence, more money, greater position. And we do all of this at the neglect of nurturing our souls. We do all of this often from an outward perspective and to totally forgetting the heart of the issue. Instead of cultivating our spirit, developing our soul, enlarging our heart, I mean real soul care, we are rushing quickly on and our souls need to catch up with our bodies. I hope the holidays gave you some time to rest. Ha. <laughs> it's worse than ever, right? And so you come to church and resting is upon your minds. I can tell some of you are beginning to rest right now. But we need soul rest, probably need physical rest too, but soul rest. We need to let our souls catch up with our bodies. And I think the best way to do that, that is to care for our soul, to cultivate our soul, to give rest to our soul, is to feed our soul on Jesus Christ. We did that in a service just completed in a very tangible and demonstrable way. We fed on Jesus Christ. It was all symbolic. As I said, there is nothing magical about the bread, but the whole symbol of the service is that we are feeding on Christ. What in the world does that mean? Well, there's no better place for us to go than the Gospel of John to get some explanation about feeding on Christ. And I invite you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 4. If you need a pew Bible, it's in the New Testament 
John chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible, let me encourage you to take the one in the pew in front of you or steal the one from your neighbor next to you. Actually, don't do that. <laughs> Some of you may not think I'm joking. Life lived at a frenzied pace. That was true of Jesus. When we come to John chapter 4, we realize that uh, much ministry had been going on and there was opposition from people like the Pharisees. But when we come to verse 3 of chapter 4, God, Gospel of John, the Bible tells us that Jesus left Judea and went back once more to the Galilee. Now a simple map of Israel uh, gives us the fact that Judea is in the south, Galilee is in the north, and there's a section of country in between called Samaria. So we read in verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. That is not a geographical necessity, that is a spiritual necessity. Because geographically he had three options. He could have gone to the east to the city of Jericho and then took the normal route up the Jericho Rift Valley along the Jordan River all the way to the north, and of course the Jordan River would take you right to the Sea of Galilee. That was a very popular route. Another one would be to go west to the Mediterranean Sea, and there catch the Via Maris, one of the major trade routes that was just inland from the sea and would track the coast all the way to Caesarea on the sea and finally into Lower Galilee. But it said he had to go through Samaria. It was a spiritual necessity, as we're going to see in just a moment. Now, you have to acknowledge that many of the days in the life of Christ were normal days, ordinary days, days not even recorded here, uh, days where he did normal things, and traveling was often just a normal ordinary thing. But this day, this travel day, is going to become extraordinary because he had to go through a place most Jews avoided. So he came to a town, verse 5, in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and by the way, is still there today. And uh, next to the well, uh, by Jacob's well, um, Jesus was tired. And as uh, tired from the journey, he sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which means high noon. High noon in Israel is one of the hottest times. It's a dusty trail. And Jesus sets down to relax. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now let me just stop there and remind you of a couple things. Number one, John starts out his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What's the rest of it? And the Word was God. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says, The Word was made flesh. 
and dwelt among us. So who is the Word? The Word is God and the Word is man. He is perfect God and perfect man. Totally God, one in essence with the Father, the exact representation of the Father, Hebrews tells us, but he is also perfectly man. And here are three reasons. Here are three uh, demonstrations of this. He got tired after a long walk. And so he sat down to rest. He got hungry after a morning walk. And so the disciples were sent into the town to buy food. And he was thirsty. So he asked for a drink of water from a woman who came to the well. All of that is quite normal. And I think it's important for us to remember that when we're talking about Jesus Christ, he was willing to come to this earth as a human being so that he could be, as a human being, our sin bearer. But as God, capable of taking our sin away forever. Extraordinary. But when he asked this Samaritan woman for a drink, she was appalled. She was shocked. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. That is, my friend, something of an understatement. The Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. That's why they rarely took this route through the land. They would go to extremes to avoid going through the land of Samaria. The Jews hated the Samaritans because they were a mixed race. Coming out of the Assyrian captivity where the Jews were taken to a foreign land and there in Assyria they intermarried and then some of those individuals came back and settled in this in-between land between southern Judah and northern Galilee. The Samaritans were a mixed race could not trace a pure bloodline in fact to insult Jesus one day in the gospel of John someone called him a Samaritan I'm sure they had Samaritan jokes that they told much like we do and I'll not give you any examples but added to that the Samaritans because they did not like the Jews had their own scripture. The Samaritan scriptures basically were the first five books of Moses, the, the Pentateuch. But they did not embrace anything after that. <coughs> not the historic books, not uh, the prophets, not the books of poetry. So what they had was biblical, but what they had was limited. And their understanding was also limited, as verse 22 of chapter 4 tells us, salvation is of the Jews. You Samaritans don't know about salvation. They were worshiping the true God, but they were limited in their worship because they did not know all that God had revealed in the scriptures about himself. The Samaritan scriptures also changed the place of worship to Mount Gerizim which Moses commanded, according to their scriptures, an altar be built there. So they started worshiping on Mount Gerizim, even built a temple in 400 B.C. But the Jews, all of that angered the Jews and made them hate them even more. The Jews 
tore down the temple in 128 B.C. So the Jews hated the Samaritans for building a temple, and the Samaritans hated the Jews for tearing down the temple. They just didn't like each other. And Jesus said, I've got to go through Samaria. Isn't it amazing? The compassion and mercy of Christ. Going to those who are rejected by others, going with compassion and mercy. I have to go, he says. So he asks the woman for a drink, and she responds. Um, by the way, this woman had several problems, you might say. Several disadvantages. Number one, she was a woman. Now, I don't mean that to be a true statement that women are disadvantaged or less than men. I'm simply telling you in that day, that was a true statement that women did not have the status that men do. And men don't talk to women, at least in public. Secondly, she was from a race that was hated. So there was something of an ethnic problem. And Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And thirdly, she was a woman with a past, a reputation that was sullied and sinful. Isn't it interesting? Jesus, the man, talks with a woman. Jesus, the Jew, talks with a Samaritan. Jesus, the respected rabbi, talks with a woman who has a past. I tell you, Jesus did everything that people told him not to do. He did everything that wasn't acceptable, even going into the land. Why? Because I have to seek and to save that which is lost. I wonder how much you and I are willing to do to reach out to those who are really in need. But the story that I want to emphasize really begins with the response that Jesus gives to this woman in verse 10. Jesus answered her, now if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink. Those are two great questions, aren't they? Do you know what the gift of God is? Do you know the person who is speaking to this woman? If you knew the gift and if you knew the, the giver of the gift, if you knew the gift was from God and the giver was the son of God, wouldn't that make a great difference? If God has something to give you and he wants to give it to you through Jesus, are you interested in taking it? Some of you say, no. That's exactly what you're saying, no. Other of you, others of you say, yeah, I'd be interested, but you know, it's kind of a busy day. I got a lot on my plate. Maybe later. Some other time. Jesus said, if you knew, you would not only uh, give me the drink that I request, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would have given you, get this, living water. Now, there is a sense in which all water is living water, because you and I, to sustain our physical life, must have water. Water to us is life. 
But Jesus plays on that and says, no, I'm talking about water that gives you unending life. Not physical, but something deeper. Sir, verse 11, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this water? Can't you hear the sarcasm or, or at least the unbelief? Are you greater than our father Jacob? If Jesus would have answered that, he would have said, yes. <laughs> verse 26 says that he is the Messiah. But he just let her go on. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well, drank from it himself, and also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus avoids that question and simply says, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. There is a limit to the life that natural water can give. It sustains physical life until you need another drink. It's limited. But this water, but whoever drinks of the water I give him, will never thirst. So there's a promise. Write it down. Whatever this water is that Jesus offers results in you never being thirsty. Do you believe that? Do you experience that? And the reason is this, because the water I give you will become in you a spring of water. That's better than a pool, isn't it? A pool grows stagnant, but a spring is refreshing. It's pure. It almost seems unlimited. It's constantly flowing new. The water I give you, once taken in, creates a spring within that continues to well up into life unending. So drink natural water, you'll have life that ends. You'll thirst again. Drink this water, you'll never thirst again, and you'll have unending life. Now, I really think her response was somewhat sarcastic in verse 15. Sir, give me this water. I hate coming to this well every day. It's, it's noon, and it's hot. Give me this water so I don't have to keep come drinking the water. And then Jesus goes into another issue, which we won't get into this morning. I simply want you to note that Jesus, the giver, offers the gift of God, which is water once ingested creates a spring that never ends and issues forth in eternal life. Drink, my friend, deep of Jesus. You say, well, what is this? Well, we can jump over to John 7 and get uh, uh, some answers to our questions, a fuller understanding. Now, remember, the Samaritan wo woman didn't know who was talking to her at this point, and she didn't know that he was offering a gift from God under the guise of water, living water. So this is later on, Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. And near the end of the feast, in fact, the last day of the feast, John 7, verse 37, Jesus stands up 
and in a loud voice shouts. Now notice the contrast right away between the two scenarios. What do you notice about chapter 4? Private interview. Disciples are gone. Woman alone at the well, most likely. Uh, personal conversation with Jesus. But now you have the opposite. Temple filled, the temple courts, with people doing all kinds of things. It's a festival that draws the Jews in from all over the world. And Jesus, now not in a conversational tone, but with a loud voice, proclaims. On the one hand, a personal interview, and on the other hand, a public declaration. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within. A lot of parallels there. This is predicated on the fact that people are thirsty, that they're eager that they're sink, seeking something. It's predicated on the fact that Jesus has what they really need. What they're really longing for. What does it mean to be thirsty? I suppose the best way to describe it is to uh, emphasize the fact that it is in the heart of every true human being. It is a passionate longing to find the essence of life that satisfies. Resources that meet our inherent problems. Answers that will help us navigate the difficult terrain of life. Hope in our darkest hour. The mysterious longings of the human heart that stubbornly are and refuse to be satisfied by most of what the world offers, Jesus is offering something deeper. Now let me pause and say at this point that everyone in the world is seeking God, they just don't know it. Everyone is seeking God when they go to the racetrack, when they go to the ball game, when they go to the red light district. They're seeking satisfaction. They're seeking relief. They're seeking hope or a thrill or something that will satisfy, fill them. And in essence, they're seeking God the wrong way. But Jesus says, if you knew of the gift, you'd take it. Because this is your deepest longing. Some don't even know they're thirsty. Some of you are well aware of the fact that you are spiritually empty and you need hope. Others know they're missing something, but they have no idea that fundamentally it is a spiritual issue. And so notice the invitation in verse 37. If anyone is thirsty, are you thirsty? Are you longing? Is your soul empty? then come. Isn't that a wonder, wonderful invitation? Come. There was an old Puritan who had a famous sermon, and the title of it was Come and Welcome to Jesus. I just love that title. Never read the sermon, but I love the title. Come and welcome to Jesus. 
If ever, anyone is thirsty, the invitation is clear. Then come. Now, the explanation is rather interesting. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What is it to drink of Jesus? Next verse. Whoever believes in me, drinking is believing. Drinking is believing. By the way, we, we often, many people often start out their new year by drinking. <laughs> and drinking and drinking. And it affects the way they think and the way they walk. Sometimes with disastrous results. Wouldn't it be great if we would start the new year out by drinking deeply of Jesus? And drinking is believing. Now, if you go back to chapter 6, verse 35, John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Remember that statement? <clears throat> He's saying, I am the living water in 4 and 7, but in chapter 6, he is saying, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, if I handed that in to my English teacher, she would say, you're mixing your metaphors. Bread and eating and hunger and then thirsting. But they all go together. And what is eating of Christ? It's believing. And what is drinking of Christ? It's believing. And what is this service we call the Lord's Supper? But believing in His promises in a very tangible way. We often walk by faith, not by sight, but during the communion service we can touch and taste and feel and believe. Eating is believing. Drinking is believing. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the living water. And when you go back to chapter 7, there is a promise. There's an invitation, come and drink. There's an explanation, drinking is believing. And there is a promise. When you do, streams of living water will flow from within you. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like John 4? Drink of the living water, and there'll be a spring of it flowing from within. Get, this gives us the picture that once having taken, into Christ, taken Christ into our soul, we have all we need to stay satisfied and alive. Now, verse 39 gives us further explanation. John 7, 39. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. Now Christ has been glorified. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father, glorified. And now everyone who believes gets the Spirit of Jesus. That's who comes in. When you believe in Christ... He takes your sin away. When you believe in Christ, the Spirit comes to live in. And that Holy Spirit then feeds you, fills you with like a spring that ever flows of Christ. And it is the task of the church to introduce the thirsty 
to the living water, Jesus, the risen Lord with life-transforming power. We are to tell the world who Jesus is eternally. We are to tell the world what he has done historically. We are to experience ourselves and tell the world what he longs to do presently. And we are to tell everyone what he plans to do forever. His kingdom that will come. We are to demonstrate by our life how there is constant enjoyment in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That it is enough to satisfy our soul. And we need nothing else. The physical things we need he will provide. The reality of his presence within our soul. The certainty of his promise of eternity with him. You know, see, too often we as a church major on the needs that people have. The problem with that is, if you major on felt needs, that is an unending task and never satisfies because you and I, once we have something, want more. But when you take Christ in, if you present Christ as the need for everything, and in that context, evaluate everything else in the world, Christ is all you need. And from Christ crucified, we are able to deal with this world of ours. It is a spring within. In Jeremiah chapter 2, and we mentioned this last week, Jeremiah said, Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, O universe, declares the Lord. My people, Israel, or we could say my people, the church, they've committed two sins. Number one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. What is the picture that God had for Israel in the Old Testament about their relationship with him? I am the spring, drink of me, you'll never thirst. But they forsook the spring, they forgot the spring. And secondly, here's their second sin, they dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. What's a broken cistern? It's something you live for that cannot satisfy. Fame, money, relationships, acceptance, significance, influence, whatever it may be. And some of these things are very good and we need to be involved with them. But start out with feeding your soul on Christ and be satisfied with Christ. Drink of him and you'll never thirst again. You need to keep drinking, keep applying, but you never have to build another well. You never have to find another spring. It is there flowing and will flow forever. It is Jesus Christ. And people are seeking Christ all around us. Like this woman at the well. And if you and I are not drinking of Christ, we'll have nothing to say. Worse yet, we wouldn't even go through that part of town <laughs> to see the people who really have needs. All around us, people are seeking and God came to seek 
and to save that which is lost. During the 1960s, there was a rock band that became somewhat well-known by the name of the Beatles. John Lennon, who was one of the original founders of the group with Paul McCartney, helped write a song entitled Help. This was 1965. They had a movie that was also given that same name based on this particular song. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know, I need someone. Help. It doesn't sound too deep, actually, <laughs> when you read it. When I was young ago, much younger than today, never needed anybody's help in any way, but now those days are gone and I'm not so self-assured. I've come to find, I've changed my mind, I've opened up the door. Help me if you can, I'm feeling down, and I do appreciate you being around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Help, help, <laughs> help. Critics mock this song for its lack, lack of depth, but it became... Very popular. Two years before his death, at the end of an assassin's bullet, John Lennon was interviewed for a national magazine and said this. I wrote that song, Help, back in 1965, and everyone claimed that it was a great song. But no one came to answer my cry. That's what the world is doing. Help, I need someone. And who's got the answer? Who's got the living water? You don't know either? <laughs> it should be us. Horatius Bonar said, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Come unto me. Lay down thy weary one. Lay down your head upon my breast. So I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad, and I have found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. Let me encourage you this year, 2019, to feed upon Christ, to drink upon Christ by believing upon Christ every day. Fill your soul with the gladness of Christ, and then share that water with others just like Jesus did. Let's pray. Help, Lord. We need you. We often think that we are self-sufficient and that we can get by, but we need your help, divine help. And Lord, I fear that too many people in this congregation today, like me, often go through life drinking from broken cisterns with polluted water instead of taking in great drafts of living water from the eternal spring, Christ Jesus. Teach us what it is to get past the metaphor and believe every day and drink deeply every day by faith from the spring, Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit within, who represents the risen Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.